If you've got a Bible with you this morning, you can grab it and open it up to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. We are coming into what feels like the final stretch of our study in this book. Um, We're nearing the end of Jesus' time with his disciples in the upper room, just hours before he will be betrayed by Judas to the chief priests and the Pharisees. Since chapter 13 of this book, John or Jesus has been sharing with his disciples what is commonly known as his farewell discourse. Jesus knows that his time is short, and he's wrapping up his teaching. So all the sermons that you've heard here since October 23rd, with the exception of you know, Christmas and New Year's, they're all part of this upper room discourse. They've all come from the Last Supper. See, it won't, it won't be till chapter 18 that we actually get out of the upper room and follow Jesus on his final steps to the cross. And in our passage today, Jesus is reminding the disciples that while tough times are coming, there's hope. So let's jump right in and we'll take a look. And actually, before we jump right in, this passage, it's a little bit clunky in the English Standard Version that we tend to use here at Crossridge. So if you miss something at first, don't worry, we'll get it sorted. I just wanted you to be a little bit forewarned there. Chapter 16, starting in verse 16, Jesus says, A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he's saying to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Father, I want to pray this morning that you would give us clarity around this. That as the disciples had a hard time understanding, sometimes we can have a hard time understanding what you're doing as well. We pray that you would allow us to see it, and when we can't see it, God, that we would be able to trust you for the joy that's been set before us. So we pray that in your name. Amen. So our passage this morning, when we're diving into it, we're going to look at a statement from Jesus, a question from the disciples, Jesus' answer to those questions, and the application that we can draw from those answers. Okay? So first, we've got a statement. Verse 16, Jesus says very clearly in the English Standard Version, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. It's super clear. Well, having read the passage and with some knowledge of what's to come, you've probably got a decent idea as to what it is that he's actually talking about. The New Living Translation makes it a touch more readable when it says, in a little while you won't see me anymore. This is a little clarifications. But a little while after that, you will see me again. But even with a more familiar sentence structure, it's still a bit odd sounding. And aside from Jesus' explanation in next week's passage that he's been using figures of speech, we can easily miss the message because context is king. It's important to remember that the interaction that Jesus is having with the disciples is happening at the Last Supper. This 
right here is not an isolated discussion. It's part of a larger sermon that he's giving the disciples. And this farewell discourse that's taking place in the upper room isn't an event that's isolated from the previous 12 chapters of the book of John. And the book of John as a whole isn't isolated from the rest of the big God story that makes up the Bible. So Jesus is talking to his disciples. Why are they his disciples? He's asked them to follow him. Why did they follow him? Because they saw him do and teach amazing things. And they believed that he was the long-awaited Messiah. Why were they waiting for a Messiah? Because way back in Genesis, right? In the beginning, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, bringing sin into the world, God made a promise to make things right again. That one day he would send a deliverer, the Messiah, to save his people. So when he made that promise, Adam and Eve in the moment would have understood that to mean someone would come to save their people from their sins. As time went on, though, as sin grew in the world and as God's people rebelled against him, there were consequences. Often those consequences came in the form of another nation conquering or oppressing or enslaving Israel. And people became less concerned about being saved from their sin and more concerned with being saved from their oppressor. Their hope for a deliverer or a messiah morphed into a hope for a military leader who would conquer, defeat the oppressor, and give Israel national freedom. In the meantime, God continued to send prophets and messages and visions and miracles to remind his people that the oppression, the hardships that they were facing, they were a result of sin. They needed deliverance from sin. He wanted to restore their relationship with him wanting them to long for that relationship. But the people couldn't or wouldn't hear that. They wanted someone to deal with the consequences. They wanted someone to deal with the symptoms. And our passage today finds 12 men who have spent their whole lives longing for a deliverer, believing that God would send someone to free them from Rome. And they believed that they had found him. He's shown his power over nature. He's shown his authority in his teaching. He's shown his boldness in dealing with the religious leaders. And even now, just the season that they're in, it's Passover, Israel's biggest national holiday celebration feast. Jesus is starting to talk big. He seems to be getting really deep. There's lots of talk about his time coming. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. What better time for a rebellion than the Passover? I mean, just the symbolism of that is amazing. Twelve angry men who are ready to die for what they believe, for who they believe in. And in that moment, Jesus says, in a little while, you won't see me anymore. What? Well, but then in a little while later, you'll see me again. What? Now, the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they each record three instances of Jesus predicting his death and resurrection. And that's just what's recorded. We don't want to put words in Jesus' mouth, but you can imagine that there were other conversations about this as well. He's been dropping hints or just flat out telling them what's going to happen. It's not a brand new idea. But even with that context of all their experience with Jesus, all he's had to say, they still don't get it. So they wonder to each other, and we hear them muttering a question. Verses 17 to 19. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? 
what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me. They're asking a question. And what struck me about this question section of the passage is not the wording or the way that they're asking this. What struck me was actually the response, the way that Jesus responds to their question, and not the answer, but the way that he responds to their question. Look at what he doesn't do. Like, he doesn't jump on them, right? He doesn't say, you brood of vipers, you faithless generation, How long will you question a little while you won't see me in a little while you will? No, he doesn't say that. He saves those kind of rants for the religious leaders who should know better and do know better. These are his guys. The foolish and the unwise, the little children. He loves them. And he knows they have questions. So he draws the question out. He's not afraid of it. He's not offended by it. He loves his disciples and wants them to understand what he's saying so they can be prepared, so that they can live the life the way that he designed it to be. Jesus is sharing his final instructions with these men who are going to go out and be the foundation upon which the church of Jesus Christ that we are part of is going to be built. He wants them to understand. He wants them to ask. So he asks them. And with specifics, he doesn't say, any questions? He actually says, is this what you're wondering about? He's not shaming them. It's not, oh, you're not getting it? Do I need to help you? He, He loves them. And he loves us too, in the same way. We know he's talking to the disciples here, but I think we should take note and joy, as our passage talks about, even in what we're seeing taking place here. When we read scripture ourselves, when we find something that we don't understand, what should we do? When we're going through something that doesn't make sense or something that's painful or or scary or something that seems like it should make sense or maybe it makes sense to someone else, but it doesn't make sense to me, ask. There's no need to be embarrassed. He already knows you don't know. He knows you don't get it. He knows you're afraid to ask. Ask. Set your pride aside and ask. Jesus asks the disciples to ask. James 4 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Pretending you know when you don't, that's not humbling yourself. Ignoring the issue isn't humility. Jesus knows you're not going to understand. He knows the question is floating around in your brain, eating at your heart. It's okay to ask him. And sometimes he gives a clear answer. Sometimes it's maybe still a little unclear, not unlike his response to the disciples that we're about to get to. And that response can also, when he's speaking to us, it can come in a variety of ways. Some people hear from God audibly, directly. Or a sense of his spirit in us. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit. His presence and his direction. It can come from other places in the Bible. Another piece of scripture shedding light on what you're struggling with. Sometimes it can come in the form of of godly advice or teaching. But before we worry about how or when he's going to respond, we have to ask. James tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. He wants you to ask and to ask with faith that he will give you the answer that you need when you need it. Not on our terms. He's not afraid of the question. So we've got to ask. So Jesus makes this statement. The disciples ask a question. Jesus asks a question. But then Jesus gives the answer or the answers. It's kind of a multiple thing. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 20, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turning into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. It's pretty clear that the disciples still didn't fully understand what he was saying. But we have the advantage of the rest of Scripture. The disciples didn't know exactly what was to come in the next few days. They didn't have Luke's account of the early church in the book of Acts or Paul's letter to the churches or even John, the author of our book, his letter from the island of Patmos that many of you are working through right now in our Revelation study. With those things in our toolbox, I want us to spend a little bit of time, just a little bit of time, on two possible meanings of Jesus' answer. And not in like an either this or either this sense. Two possibly simultaneously true meanings. And they're not overly profound. You know, you've probably actually already written these things down. Firstly, we can see that Jesus is referring to his death and resurrection. This is the most obvious meaning based on the immediate context of the passage. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. So Jesus' death is obviously going to rock the disciples. Everything they've poured their lives into over the last few years, all of their hopes and dreams were tied up in Jesus. When he dies, they will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Jesus had a decent following, But it wasn't the majority. There were some who would have been just indifferent and others would have held to the older traditions. The religious leaders, they really, they really didn't like Jesus. Back in chapter 11, the chief priests and the Pharisees were trying to figure out what to do about him. They're worried that he's going to lead Israel astray, take away the power that they held over the people. And after a long debate, the high priest spoke up and said that they should kill him. So in verse 53 of chapter 11, we read, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They're going to rejoice. The world hated Jesus. It still does. So you will weep and lament. The disciples, the followers, their dreams are crushed. Jesus is dead. Hope is gone. But the world will rejoice. They got what they wanted. Jesus was now out of the way. No rebellion. No weird new teaching about loving your neighbor and caring for the poor. The world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So in a little while, just a few hours, Jesus is going to die. The disciples will be sorrowful. Then a little while later, again a little while, just a couple of days, Jesus is going to come back to life, and their sorrow is going to be turned to joy. 
Verse 22 says, so also you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. This tough time is coming, but when they see Jesus again, no one will take their joy away. They will have thought they'd lost everything, but seeing Jesus risen, proving his Messiahship, actually proving that he was who he said he was, that he was the one they had been waiting for, the joy that they must have felt. Grant Osborne said the disciples who after his death will have a time of grief that will turn into a joy that no one will take away when they see the resurrected Jesus. Nothing the world can do in the way of persecution can rob them of the joy of resurrection, beginning with that of Jesus himself, and then resulting from his resurrection as a firstfruits, guaranteeing their own future rising from the dead. That's good. And no one can take that away from them. And they would try, though. Life would not be easy for these disciples. Of the 11 remaining after Judas kills himself, 10 of these disciples were martyred. Only John, the writer of our passage today, made it to a long, full life. But think about it. Seeing the resurrected Jesus, what boldness and hope. No one can take that away from you. And that was them. That was their context. That was what they were about to see. All these things they hoped, proven to their faces. Last week, we read this in verses 7 to 10 of chapter 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage, this is Jesus talking, it's to your advantage that I go away. More of this talk. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In verse 10, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. So in addition to the context of Jesus' death and resurrection, another possible interpretation is that Jesus is referring to his departure after his resurrection and his second coming. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again, a little while and you will see me. That's us. What is meant by a little while? The Greek doesn't even say a little while, it just says a little Because a little while could be 15 hours to the crucifixion. But then he says a little while again, and it's actually referring to a few days. What did Jesus mean? It's clear that it wasn't obvious to the disciples. Time has always been a bit of a touchy subject when it comes to Bible study and interpretation. James 4.14 says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. A little time? This can feel kind of long. Next month, Mickey's grandpa is celebrating his 100th birthday. That's a long time. I wouldn't consider that a vanishing mist. But in the grand scheme of things, it actually is a little. Hebrews 10, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward, for you have a need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Why do you need endurance to make it through a little while? If a little while means a little while. There are a whole bunch of references to time in the Bible that people lose their minds over. They lose their minds. I don't want to get into them today. 
Because they're super controversial. Like church split controversial. Those of you studying Revelation right now, I mean, a time and a time plus half a time? This isn't helpful. Even Jesus' words, his final words in the book of Revelation say, Surely I am coming soon. Soon. Or everyone's favorite when dealing with time. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Soon, a little while, a thousand years. There's a relativeness here that muddies the water a bit. But when Jesus says, a little while and you won't see me, and again, a little while you will, and your joy will not be taken from you, there's a perfection in there that's implied that that sounds a whole lot like heaven. We sang earlier, though we grieve our losses, we grieve not in vain, for we know our crown of glory waits beyond the grave. Hallelujah, what a day it will be, for at home with you, my joy is complete. So the truth is that Jesus knew that we would be reading this today. And while he wanted the disciples to stand firm in the face of great sorrow, knowing that there was hope on the horizon, he wants the same for us. A little while, we won't see him. Then a little while, we will. And our joy will not be taken from us. Which brings us to the applications. The first is that for the believer, sorrow will give way to joy. Underline will. If you're taking notes, circle it. Bold. When a woman is giving birth, verse 21, she has sorrow because her hour has come. I love this part. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again in your hearts. We'll rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. Now, not all of us in here are women. And not all women in here have had this experience. And while I wouldn't call myself an expert, I have witnessed this event three times. Four if you include the video they made us watch in health class in grade nine. But it is crazy. Now there are some women in here who are actually getting very close to a due date, maybe for your first child. I'm not trying to worry you, but it is crazy. There's screaming, there is a sense of regret hanging in the room, like whose idea was this? And it's not me just trying to guess what they're thinking, I have heard those words in the room. Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. She has sorrow now because the hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born. By way of research, I texted a few moms to ask their thoughts. Do you remember the pain and anguish and sorrow of giving birth, or did you forget it for the joy that a human being has been born? These were some of their responses. No, I didn't forget. Uh, Forget is not a word I would use for any of them. No, I don't think I forgot. Ladies, I I don't know if you've forgotten, but... uh, Liz and Brendan Wilkinson, one of our youth leader couples, they welcomed Beverly and Laura into their family this week, which is a great announcement as well. I asked her the same question, a little bit bit closer to it. At the end of her response, she said this, I'd be able to describe general feelings and pain, but wouldn't be able to recall the exact feeling, but definitely, I love that, she bolded that, all caps, definitely nothing in comparison to the joy now. 
And that's really the bit, isn't it? Definitely nothing in comparison to the joy now. Not specifically to say the sorrow or the pain is just going to disappear. You won't ever remember it. What John is getting at here is that ultimately the joy is worth it. It's worth the sorrow. It's terrifying and chaotic. You know, in the birthing room, it can be quick and out of control or long and agonizing. But then there's a baby. And I know that when I held Caleb for the first time, I immediately forgot all the pain that Nikki had just endured. (laughs) But the, the call for that we have from Jesus is to trust him that what you are about to go through and do not make the mistake of thinking you've made it this far, you're not going to face sorrow. When that time comes, hold on to the joy because the joy is going to be worth it. In the hours that follow, Jesus will set this example for his disciples and for us. He's going to go into the garden and pray and plead with the Father to take this away from him. But he says, yet not my will, but yours. We read in Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He was able to do that because of the joy that was set before him. In our passage, he knows what's coming, and he wanted the disciples, he wanted us to see the joy that lies ahead and not be waylaid by sorrow and suffering. Believer, to you this morning, I say, followers of Jesus, when you are struggling, when you are met with sorrow and pain and anguish, be reminded that, to use the ESV language, a little while you might not see him. And then again, a little while. And you will see him. And when that happens, no one can take that joy from you. For a little while, he's not physically with us. And in the dark, in the valley, our ability to see him is often further diminished. But he asks us not to lose heart. He tells us that joy is coming. And in our passage, Jesus is telling his followers not to be overcome with sorrow because joy is coming. And following the example of Jesus, because of the joy set before us, we can do the same. We can endure. Now, I say this as a man who has not experienced the kind of suffering that many of you have. I know this. I don't say that flippantly. I don't claim to know what you're going through. But somebody does. And we all suffer. Suffering and sorrow, anguish and pain, they are all part of our experience. I feel like every time I preach, I I have this as one of my main points. But this is the human condition. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise. James 1.12 Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. There's a test. There's joy. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For this light momentary, light doesn't always seem so light, momentary doesn't always seem so momentary. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Jesus knows that we're going to be sorrowful. 
Let me make it more personal. Jesus knows that you are sorrowful. He knows your sorrow. Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus asks us to hold on. 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That's an encouragement right there. We are not alone. And after you have suffered a little while, again, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Again, I am not discounting your trial. I'm not minimizing your experience, but the message is clear. There is joy that comes through suffering. And the joy that comes through suffering is a joy that can only come through suffering. Just as the one who has been forgiven much loves much, right? Like they're super stoked. They're more excited about the forgiveness. The one who suffers deeply experiences a greater joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various or trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's where this is taking us. Do not despair. Sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Sorrow will turn to joy. The second application here is that we can now pray in Jesus' name. And as distinct as these sound, they are actually part of the same thing. Verse 23, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So up to this point, the disciples would go to Jesus directly with questions, with requests. And Jesus is saying, now you can go directly to the Father. But when you do, You're going to use my name. Ask the Father in Jesus' name. Now, to those of us who have been around church a lot, or even a little, really, asking the Father, praying in Jesus' name, it kind of seems like it's just the way that you're supposed to do it, right? Like we say a prayer, and then we say, in Jesus' name, amen, and that's what makes it a prayer. It can seem a bit formulaic. I mean... Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, those are Jesus' words, whatever you ask, he will give it to you. But that doesn't sound right. Because I have prayed for some pretty great stuff, and I don't have it. And I said in Jesus' name, amen. So that's obviously not what this is about. But Jesus said, truly, truly, that means extra true. Ask him. In my name and whatever you ask, he'll give you. So what's going on here? If, if it's not a formula or a magic spell, what exactly is it? And in just a few minutes that we have left, I want us to look at three ways we can look at what it means to pray in Jesus' name. And the first is that 
asking, it's asking the Father based not on our merit, but that of Jesus. When we come to God, we need to recognize he doesn't owe us anything. Actually, if he does owe us something, it's actually, it's death, but that's a discussion for another time, right? It's a happy thought, I know. But because of our sin, we deserve punishment. We haven't done anything to earn something from him. We haven't done anything that would even give us the right to ask him. R.A. Torrey likened prayer to going to the bank of heaven. (laughs) We've got nothing deposited there, no credit. If we go in our own name, we have nothing. But Jesus has unlimited resources there. And he has allowed us to put his name on our checks. So when we go in his name, he says that our prayers will be honored to any extent. Sometimes we go to the Father proud, entitled, not in Jesus' name, but in our own name. James Boyce said that much modern prayer, even by serious Christian people, is useless and ineffective because the people involved approach God thinking that he is obliged to grant their request because of something they themselves have done for him. It's just not the case. We come to the Father recognizing that we have nothing to offer, that we are utterly dependent on him for what we need and on Jesus' name for those needs to be met. And it's not just a name drop either. It's not me walking into a swanky restaurant saying, hey, me and the owner's son are tight. You know, can I get a table and a discount? We don't ask on our merit. We ask on the merit of Jesus. The second thing that can give us some clarity around this is it's asking the Father for Jesus' sake. When it comes to it, it's actually less about what we want, what we're trying to do, and more about what is in line with the will, heart, and mission of Jesus, which is ultimately to bring glory to the Father. In chapter 14, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified. I will do it that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Colin Cruz suggests reading it this way, whatever you ask for my sake, this I will do. If you ask me anything for my sake, I will do it. It's asking, weirdly, something for Jesus so that he can glorify the Father. Now, a danger here is viewing this as impersonal, to suggest maybe that God doesn't care what we want, only what Jesus wants. Now, remember, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. God's love for us is immense. It's perfect. Jesus' love for us is immense and perfect. Are there times when we will cry out to God for help? When we want something, when we need something? Of course. Does the Father hear our cries? Yes. Is what you're asking his will? Maybe. Is what you're asking in line with Jesus' mission to bring glory to the Father? It might be, but it might not be. I've already mentioned Jesus' prayer before going to the cross. Father, if there's any other way, please. Yet, not my will, but yours. He needed to be delivered. He wanted to be delivered. But God's will was for something else to happen. His will is to bring glory to himself. And sometimes that means not giving you what you ask. So how do we get there? How do we actually pray in Jesus' name? For Jesus' sake, how do we move from asking him for a higher-paying job, which might be part of his plan, part of his will, or blessing the meat lover's pizza we're about to eat? Is that what he wants? 
To help us get there, there's one third way that we can look at asking in Jesus' name, and that's asking in oneness with God. It takes time to get to know someone. It's hard to know who someone is and what they're about and what they love without time. Over time, as we move through the various stages of sanctification, as our hearts become more in tune with that of Jesus asking in his name for his sake, it actually starts to become natural. I can often speak on Nikki's behalf because I've known her longer than I haven't. This May, we'll be celebrating 25 years married. I can tell you what things are important to her. I can tell you what things she loves, what her hopes are. Most of those things have to do with me. But it hasn't always been that way. There have been times when I didn't know her as well as I thought. There have been times when she has said, how could you possibly think that that's what I wanted right now? The amazing thing about a relationship with Jesus is that through time, he actually brings us into oneness with God. Last week, Lee walked us through the beginning of this chapter where Jesus says it's better that he go away so that the Holy Spirit, the helper he calls him, could come to us. And when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you, for the rest of your life, he works on your heart and your soul to shape it and bring it more in line with that of Jesus. And remember, the Holy Spirit is God. Having the Spirit in you is oneness with God. In John 14, 20, Jesus says that in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. 1 Corinthians 6, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. We have oneness with God. And when we pray in that oneness, in an overflow of our unity with him, we can't help but pray in Jesus' name. And we have also the benefit of the Holy Spirit who can do the heavy lifting for us when we don't know how to pray, because let's be honest, sometimes we don't. Romans 8, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. How? According to the will of God. And then everyone's favorite verse taken out of context that often gets us to pray the wrong way. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Remember, according to God's will. For those who are called according to his purpose. Truly, truly, Jesus promised, whatever you ask in my name, because of what Jesus has done, for Jesus' sake, in oneness with God, whatever you ask, the Father will do. That's amazing. And it's something that believers, all of us, we have access to. And it should be an incredible sense of joy. And I'm saying it should be because some of us just aren't there yet. You're new to this, or maybe you've spent too long treating the Father like a vending machine. But instead of insert coins, right? You're not just inserting coins, you're in Jesus' name. When we struggle, when we meet sorrow, when we suffer, and again, as always, it's when When, 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 not if. We can have hope that joy is on the horizon, whether it's joy that we will one day see Jesus face to face, all sickness and sadness and sin, limitations of our bodies all gone, fully restored, fully alive. Or it's in knowing that we have the spirit of the living God in us who will bring our hearts in line with his and we can pray in Jesus' name and the Father will give us whatever we ask Put another way, all things 
will work together for good of those who are called according to his purpose. And no one will be able to take away our joy because of that. It's good. Let's pray. God, we ignore your teaching. We ignore your spirit. And so often it's out of shame. It's often out of pride. But whatever the reason is, God, we pray that you would let these words ring true. That when we find these moments of suffering, when we have these trials, we recognize that we don't see you now, but we will. And the joy that you have given us is so much greater than anything we can have in this world because this world is temporary. Let us be responsive to your spirit as we pray that your will would be done and that we would take joy in what happens as you work that out. We pray in your name. Amen.